Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll turn to the to the end of Luke chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for the opportunity we have to be in your house again tonight. We thank you that you are uh, the God of all grace. We just read that uh, Jesus Christ, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Gordon was teaching this morning, and he said the answer to uh, more sin, answer to rebellion is more grace. And God, in fact, Peter will write later on in Second Peter that God gives more grace. So we thank you, Father, that you are the God of all grace, and you extend to us what we do not deserve. We do pray for the ones that have been brought to our attention and others tonight. We lift them up and ask that you intervene on their behalf. We thank you for answered prayer on behalf of so many. As we are often reminded, you uh, have touched and restored a number of folks here at Flat Creek. And so we thank you and praise you this evening. We ask that you would continue, according to your will, to grant that uh, to be the great physician in these individuals' lives. Pray for those that are traveling. We ask that you give them traveling mercy. And they teach us from your word this evening about the incarnation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> There's quite a bit in Luke's gospel about uh, chapter 1, of course, the Mary's, the, the uh, Annunciation, and then her, uh, what's called the Magnificent. And then toward the end of chapter 2, uh, the, uh, a man by the name of um, Simeon, they take Jesus uh, to Jerusalem to be circumcised, and Simeon shows up, <clears throat> and he begins to make a prophecy about Christ. And look at verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through his own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. <clears throat> now, in Keller's little book, uh, Hidden Christmas, great read, by the way. It's only a little over 100 pages. <clears throat> he wrote this a number of years ago. And he speaks uh, to what uh, is said here. In fact, he uses this particular uh, passage here and writes a chapter entitled The Sword in the, uh, in the Soul. And he says, this is a Christmas text, a birth narrative in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus' parents brought him to the temple to be circumcised, on the eighth day there was an old man present, Simeon, who had been waiting for the Messiah. When the family went by him, he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to perceive Jesus' true identity. <clears throat> he took the baby in his arms and spoke now famous words called the Nuke Dimitus. And this is the Latin translation of, of what was uh, said in <clears throat> the prophecy there, uh, beginning in, in verse 25. And basically it's rendered something like, Now, Lord, let the servant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Simeon is thanking God that he lived just long enough to see the Messiah. So this is contained here in Luke's gospel, but that's not all that Simeon said. In fact, look at verse, we, we just read verses 34 and 35. And 
Keller says it's understandable why the second statement from Simeon is relatively unknown, especially at this time of year. And he said both the secular and the sacred um, church celebrations of Christmas focus almost entirely on sweetness, innocence, and light. They're all about how the coming of Christ brought peace to the earth. And that indeed did happen. But he writes, it's not that simple. How does a surgeon bring peace to your body if it has a tumor in it? Surgeon spills your blood, cuts you open, because that's your only path to health. And he was writing this book about the time he learned that he had, uh, Tim Keller had uh, pancreatic cancer. How does a therapist help a downcast, depressed person? Often she does it by bringing up the past, getting the patient to confront painful memories and terrible feelings. The surgeon and the therapist often have to make you feel worse before they can make you feel better. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He quickly goes on to show he does not mean that he comes to incite violence, and some people misinterpret that particular passage. He means rather that his call to allegiance brings conflict, conflict among, uh, both among people and within people. Just um, like any peacemaker who has ever lived, Jesus made people angry, and he often causes struggle and strife. <laughs> Yet this is the way that peace comes. And then he cites a, a couple of, uh, uh, of illustrations. He said, I once knew a policeman who, after converting to Christianity, would not take the money that the local pimps quietly passed around his precinct so that the police would not arrest their prostitutes. A couple of other policemen approached him and said, you'd better watch it. You're making the other guys very nervous. You have to take the money. He refused, and after getting some anonymous threats, he had to move to another city. See the principle played out? You don't have to be Jesus Christ to get people furious at being exposed for who they are. Just living an honest, moral life will expose gossip in the office, corruption in government, <clears throat> and racism in the neighborhood. The manger at Christmas means if you live like Jesus, there won't be room for you in a lot of ends. And I think that has... It should be very, uh, it's relevant and it's also prevalent. And we should keep that in our minds at all times. In the early days of Christianity, Roman society was virtually awash with gods, religious cults, and mystery religions. <clears throat> that culture, it was expected that you sh should have your own private faith and your own gods. Yet when it came time to give public honor to the gods of a particular city or to the divine emperor himself, you had to participate. Roman homes, civic and public agencies, marketplaces, associations of tradespeople, and military units each had their own patron gods and regular public ceremonies dedicated to them. We've talked and preached about this several times. <clears throat> Even most formal dinners that folks were invited to included paying allegiance to the local gods, and you had to bring an offering. 
To refuse to participate arouse suspicion, resentment, and anger, and a fear of divine reprisal against the whole community. So this is the, again, the culture that the early church was birthed in. It quickly became clear that Christianity was quite different from all these others. Not only did Christians have no priests, sacrifices, or temples, but they saw sacrificing to any other god as idolatry. The exclusiveness of Christian belief and their conviction that Jesus was not just a god but the god put Christians on a collision course with nearly every one of the religious, uh, religiously pluralistic society. Intolerant Christians appeared to be a threat to the whole social order. And historians have explained that early Christians were, as a result, often disinherited, excluded from government jobs, cut out of the best business relationships, and occasionally and eventually physically abused, imprisoned, and martyred. So in our secular society today, non-Christians do not fear divine reprisal. But increasingly, our culture also sees Christians as a threat to the social order. Now, this has changed and changed rapidly in the past 50 years. Traditional Christian beliefs are once again seen as dangerously intolerant. And some kinds of restrictions and exclusions may be in our future as well. So the gospel message brings hostility because it is seen now, as much as it was then, as intolerant. The Bible talks about these types of things quite often. He quotes or he lists Romans 1, tells us that at the bottom we need to know God, but we repress the knowledge of God. We have a motor, he writes, of self-justification. I like that term. A motor of self-justification deep in our hearts. We need to believe that we are competent to run our own lives and to save ourselves. Anything that prevents this motive from fun functioning makes us very angry. And that's, he says, what the gospel does. Paul would write to the church at Corinth, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. But no one wants to hear that. It's not surprising that they got mad at Paul. You identify with Jesus and you don't hide your connection. Some people will get mad at you too. There's a danger in talking about this because Christians are flawed human beings. And we often bring censure upon ourselves through hypocrisy and bigotry. We can't justify our own flaws and missteps by complaining that we are being persecuted. Sometimes people are simply offended by us, and sometimes they have a right to be. But Simeon is saying that there's an offensiveness to Jesus himself, and every time and place it will find an expression. The coming of Jesus into our lives makes us peacemakers, yet it also brings conflict. If you are a committed Christian then, you will know both the triumphs of peacemaking and the heartbreak of opposition. Christians often feel like the psalmist when he wrote, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. 
Jesus causes conflicts within us, not only on the outside, but within us. Simeon said a sword will pierce his own soul too. And certainly it did. Mary stood near the cross and watched her son die. She had known and pondered for years all of the testimonies that her son was the Christ, the Messiah. However, like everyone around her, and especially because she was his mother, she had no expectation of an early, terrible death, and certainly none of a resurrection. It must have seemed to her, as to all Jesus' disciples, that the cross was the bloody, incomprehensible end to all their hopes and dreams. To that terrible disillusionment, Mary could add the unique agony and bottomless grief of outliving her child watching him die. There was a lot of confusion in Jesus' family. In Mark 3, we are told that Jesus' mother and brothers found his claims in ministry to be literally madness. We are told that they went out to bring him home by force because he was out of his mind. Mark 3, verse 21. When they arrived where he was ministering and called him to come out to them, Jesus had to repudiate them. Now, this doesn't mean he broke relationships with them. But it does mean that he was following his father's directive. And that superseded all other relationships. Looking around to the crowd and his disciples in Mark 3, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Mary is one of the more admired people in all of the Bible. She stands before us as a representative of everybody who loves Jesus. If you love Jesus and have him in your life, a sword will pass through your heart as well. There will be inner conflict. There will be confusion. There will be great pain. You will get things wrong. You will fight with him, and you'll fight with yourself. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, wrote about Christians. He said, quote, The child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as his inward peace. We know that when you put your faith in Christ, many struggles are ended but not all. The struggle to prove yourself, to find an identity, to have a meaning in life that can handle suffering, to find true satisfaction, all of these fights become resolved. However, a new set, a whole new set of struggles is touched off by faith in Christ. That's why Raul can say a real Christian is not known only by the peace but also by new conflicts. He explains there are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians where they live. They are married with Christian marriage service. They're buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their faith of spiritual strife and, ex uh, and exertion and conflict 
and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. True Christianity is a fight. For one thing, Keller writes, God's peace comes after the inner conflict of repentance. It's not easy for us to repent. It's against our nature to repent. We are not wrong. Somebody else is wrong. Repentance is like an antiseptic. You pour antiseptic onto a wound, and it stings, but it heals. I remember when I was a boy, um, mom would use uh, mercurochrome. Chrome? Is that what it's called, mercurochrome? Man, that stuff. But first of all, it, it stunk. And secondly, all it burned. So I never understood exactly why she used it. She'd say, go get that bottle. And we knew exactly what she was talking about. <clears throat> but that's how repentance works. It creates terrible inner turmoil because you have to admit things that you don't want to admit. You have to acknowledge weakness that you don't want to acknowledge. However, that's the only way to the new piece of forgiveness, reconciliation, and overall forgiveness. And it undermines your pride and self-righteousness, a terrible burden for all of us to bear, as well as for those around you. There's no way to get into the new peace that repentance brings without going through pain. He says, I know of a Christian woman who, through a terrible accident, lost the use of her limbs. For a number of years, she was very bitter and angry. Then one day she said, God, I don't have the right to tell you how to run your universe. After she broke through to that, to that place, she developed a radiance about her. Once you fought the battle and won, nothing can get you down. A trust developed in her toward Christ. No one should ever seek suffering, and obviously we don't. But if you do go through suffering and put more trust in him, you will find a, ki a kind of indelible joy, a strength of character and power that can come to you in no other way. And this kind of fight, the Christian fight, can lead to immense peace. Jesus said he came to bring a sword. Simeon said this also. So what does it mean? It means we will get hostility for Jesus' sake. It means we will have many painful struggles in the Christian life. Christmas then teaches us that Christians should not give in to self-pity, but neither should they be short-sighted. The ultimate results of these conflicts are deeper peace and joy. The word of Simeon is that Christians should expect and be ready for trouble. They should expect conflict as a way to get to peace. We see it in Jesus and how he brought peace through the agony of the cross. We should not be surprised then when conflicts come upon us. What was Jesus doing then when he went to the cross? He was paying the penalty for sin. He was going under the sword, under the knife. It came down on him. 
Isaiah 53 says he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. So let's not give in to self-pity or cowardice. The sword that passed through Jesus, the battle that he fought for us was infinitely greater than anything he asked us to endure. And when he faced his final moment and the sword was descending, he was utterly alone and forsaken even by the Father. When we walk through our difficulties, however, we're never alone. He's always there. He's with us. He did say, I will be with you. Your troubles to bless and sanctify to thee their deepest distress. When Simeon said to Mary, there will be a sword through your soul, what if Mary had said, I don't want a sword in my soul? What if Jesus had said, I don't want a sword in my soul? I don't want to bring peace that way. Then where would you and I be? Don't shrink back. Follow him in peace. What a marvelous little thought for this time of year. Pray for Dr. Keller. I think his cancer is in remission, but obviously it's pancreatic. Some people rarely survive, but some people do survive with it. So keep him in your prayers. Comments or questions this evening? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it's very easy for us this time of year, and we should, we should reflect <clears throat> on the birth of the incarnate God. We should be reminded of his sweetness, of his love, all of these marvelous attributes that are contained within you and expressed in your creation and our redemption. But then also, Father, remind us that <clears throat> if not for the cross, there would have been no cradle. And so we praise you this evening that you have worked this out in your purposes, most of which we do not understand, but these we need to trust you because you are the all-wise God, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray.